Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Bethany. She's 37, and over the past few years, she's been getting sick constantly. She's a third grade teacher, so she's around a lot of germy kids, but even still, she gets sick much more than her peers who teach in the same classrooms. She was so fed up because it seemed like she would get a cold or another type of virus every month, and then it would take her two weeks to get better, so she would only feel well two weeks out of the month. First, it started as minor colds, and then they would progress to colds with fevers. After that, she would develop sinus infections and even bronchitis. This was no fun and no way to live life. She would sometimes need to take antibiotics, which in turn would cause yeast infections, so she was just not a happy camper. Bethany was meticulous about constantly washing her hands and making sure her hygiene was perfect, but that didn't seem to help. She read about foods that help with the immune system and started eating more vitamin C-rich foods and cut out sugar, which could be harmful. She also tried a lot of popular supplements like airborne, echinacea, astragalus, and different types of immune-boosting mushrooms. She was taking zinc and vitamin C and even put oregano oil under her tongue, but it didn't seem to help and she was still constantly getting sick. She looked into her gut as that's where most of the immune system resides and started taking probiotics, but that also didn't do too much, even though many of her friends swore by them. When I met Bethany, I noticed that she had a lot of fear regarding being sick. She kept saying how bad it was when someone gets sick and that she absolutely can't get sick because she couldn't miss work. I had a feeling that there was more here that meets the eye and something else was weakening her immune system and not allowing her to get well. We needed to dig further and to find what she was missing to solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler. And this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Bethany. She tried so many things to support her immune system with no avail. My sense was that in addition to biochemistry, her mind and beliefs about illness and getting sick were playing a role. Joining me on the show today to discuss Bethany's case further is Dr. Mario Martinez. He's a clinical psychologist and the founder of Biocognitive Science. 
Dr. Mario is the best-selling author of The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success, and the Learning Series CD, How the Mind Wounds and Heals, and the Mind-Body Self, How Longevity is Culturally Learned and the Causes of Health are Inherited. He has published numerous articles in professional journals and lectures worldwide on his research and theory of biocognition. Mario has been such a huge part of my healing journey and has since become a valued mentor. His work inspired me to dig even deeper into all of the cases that come across my desk and really look at these mysteries from every angle. I'm so excited to share his expertise with all of you. Dr. Mario, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you. I thought you were the perfect person to interview about this case because your work focuses on the psychology of the immune system, and you also then factor in the culture as well as the nervous system and the endocrine system. So can you tell us a little bit more about what this means? Yes. Um, first, biocognitive science is, is, is an integrative science. It's not alternative. It's not like you give up medicine or you give up uh, whatever you're doing. It, it integrates to whatever you're doing. But what's missing in, in medicine and psychology and neuroscience is the cultural component. And culture, the best way to describe culture for our purpose is really the collective beliefs of anything that's important in a group. So that includes your wellness, uh, the concept of illness, aesthetics, ethics, religion. All these things are really collective beliefs that affect a person by the way they learn it. Also, when we're born, we're not programmed because we're not machines. We're designed to pay much attention to those who are gonna be able to, to keep us alive and take, take care of us and so forth. So those what I call the cultural editors because they edit your life. So you're a newborn and you don't know anything about the world, you just, you're hungry. And when you're hungry, you have a physiology that's saying hunger. Then you find a breast or you find a, a bottle uh, in that suckling response, you go there uh, as a reflex uh, and then after you're, you satiate the, the hunger, you also have a physiology. You have a neuro, neuroimmunology, neuroendocrinology, and, and you have no understanding of what's going on, but you're, there's a chemistry. Then later, you develop uh, a language. You become more specific in the world, and you find, oh, that's a breast, that's a bottle, that's a mother. But you already have a physiology. So then what happens is you're adding the biosymbol to what you already have which is that my mother is an important component of my life uh, because my mother started from way back or, or the nurse or whoever took care of you. So that culture editor becomes a very powerful person in determining how you begin to shape your world. So uh, let's say that uh, uh, the person is a very caring, nourishing mother, but in that family system, uh, illness is an issue. They talk illness. They can only respond to each other when they're sick. So the biosymbol, the biosymbolic process that the person is learning, in addition to whatever the immune system, nervous system, endocrine system is doing, is a biosymbol that says illness is a very important thing here. And I have to be able to speak the illness language well. So that's a simple example, but I'll, I'll expand as we, as we go along. Mm -hmm. No, that's very, very interesting how it starts from that very beginning point and then develops from there on. So when we look at culture, and you mentioned that if 
part of your culture or your family, let's say, is illness or another type of uh, belief, how can the culture actually influence our beliefs? Um, well, for example, let's say that you have a culture, a subculture and at home, and that culture believes that teaching your child is through shaming. Don't do that. That's a bad little girl. No, no, that's not smart. That's a shaming component. Well, we now know that shaming causes inflammation because the immune system has become biosymbolic. The immune system interprets with the brain that uh, shame is something as bad as a pathogen. It, it can't determine the difference. So how can a word, you're bad, have the same effect as if you have some kind of a pathogen coming into your body? Well, it's the same because it's biosymbolic. So it's been shown already that shaming causes inflammation. And as you know, inflammation is, is responsible and, and correlated with almost every illness from cancer to depression. So you learn that process. You learn the shaming process. So there's going to be inflammation, but there's something that I call the uh, survival uh, bypass. And when you're in a situation that is functional, uh, let's say it's functional for you to respond with, uh, with shame because you're, if you don't, then, then you don't survive or, or you get a, a, a very negative consequence. There's an override there and it doesn't affect you as, as much. But let's say you're out of there now and what happens is you learn the language of shame because you learned love from the people that were important to you. So you, you wrap shame around love and that becomes your, your understanding of love. Then you go look for other people that shame you or you shame. But then it's no longer necessary because you're not a child anymore protected by your parents. You are an adult and shaming is something that is not necessary anymore. You need one of the causes of health, which is setting emotional limits, righteous anger and things that I'll talk about in a minute. But then since it's not having a function anymore of survival, then the inflammation begins to create a critical mass and it could be it could turn into fibromyalgia it could be turned into a variety of illness that you already have a propensity a genetic propensity to express that uh, so you're no longer protected by survival because survival is not necessary anymore for you to be shamed by your boss or your your partner there then we have causes of health that i call and there's where you begin to set limits you begin to um look at uh, what's going on in the situation and why you're responding with all scripts that are no longer functional in the context that you're in. Right. That's so interesting because if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that initially those scripts are there because they're needed for survival, but once you're out of there, it's not needed anymore. And it actually then works against you and can hurt you. You know, in, yes. in Bethany's case, you know, she mentioned that her parents always were on her to make sure that she dresses warm and wears a hat and gloves when it's cold outside so she, does, she doesn't get sick. They also made a huge deal every time that she would get sick, when she was little especially. They would say things like, oh no, you're sick. What happened? How did this happen? Where did you catch this? Oh, it must be because you didn't dress warm or it must be because you were around that friend that was sick and we told you you shouldn't go near her. And then, you know, she felt that it was bad to be sick and she couldn't miss work. So she was just overall afraid. How can all of these thoughts that were sort of instilled by her parents be affecting her immune system right now? Yes. For example, uh, we have the explicit and the implicit language. The explicit language says, don't go out in the rain because you'll catch a cold. The implicit language is 
the rain is dangerous. The rain is like a tiger from back in the time of the, in the forest. So what happens? That's coming from a powerful person, a cultural editor who you learn to pay attention to for survival. So that person says that to you. And immunologically, what you do is when you're in a situation of danger or fight or flight, then the immune system suppresses because it's saying it's more important to fight or flight than to kill uh, pathogens or to digest. So we're going to suppress the immune system. So that person is going out into the rain with a suppressed immune system already and with the possible shaming of, of uh, if, if she get, catches a cold. So she has immune suppression and then she has possible inflammation. She goes out and, you know, there are pathogens around all the time and she picks up the pathogen, not because of the rain, but because the, the interpretation of the rain as being dangerous and also the fear of getting admonished if she catches a cold. So it's already being set up for that. So in the case of uh, someone who was taught that that illness is, is, is inevitable and that you have to protect your guests against, against illness, then you're not really teaching the immune system to fight as, as it was taught to fight for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. This is something I really can speak to personally as well, because when I read your book and listened to some of your teaching CDs, you were talking about this cultural phenomenon of people saying, oh, if you go out in the cold or you go out in the rain, you get sick. And as I was reading that, I thought, wow, he's talking to me directly because this is exactly how I was raised. And mom and dad, I love you very much. Nothing about you. But that's also how my parents were raised. They just, that's what they knew that the cold and the rain was dangerous. So I never realized this until my work with you, but it was such a big part of what was going on in my immune system that I was already at a disadvantage because I had this fear of the cold and rain, which in turn then created, as you're saying, high cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and that there's an inverse relationship between cortisol and immune system. And therefore, I was rated as a disadvantage going out in the cold, being afraid, and of course then um, I would catch things and then it would be this vicious cycle because if you do catch something while you're out in the cold or the rain, then you think, oh, well, it was the cold and the rain that did it, right? And then it confirms that and then the cycle just goes on and on. Yes, you get evidence. Uh, so uh, evidence uh, in quotations, of course, but see, you get hit twice because you get hit with the immune um, suppression by the fear and then when you come in and you're cold, you get shamed. So you have immune suppression and all of a sudden you begin to get uh, immunological uh, uh, pro-inflammatory uh, molecules because you've been shamed. So, so it makes it even worse. It's the worst that you could do for a cold is to create inflammation. Well, that's what the cold needs inflammation, but it needs natural inflammation to fight the pathogens and surround it and so forth, but not, not that systemic inflammation that you get from, uh, from shaming. How common is it for our minds to affect our physiology in this way? Does it happen to many of us, some of us? It, it happens to all. It's just that people, um, because of that biosymbolic process, we're all biosymbolic. So, and it's very cultural because if you see a stop sign in a Western culture or in a, or in a, a culture that, that has cars and so forth, you see the stop sign and you stop. And it, it's, it's setting a limit for you. It's saying if you go beyond, there could be a problem. So you stop. But if you're in the middle of the Amazon and you see a stop sign in a jungle, what you see is a 
a an octagonal uh, sign with with red and, and white symbols that you don't know what it is. So you see it and you pass it as if there's nothing there. So there's no culture component to it. So there's always there. But what happens is some people become outliers, and that's what we try to do. And the outliers are the ones who defy the culture, even if they don't know that uh, they're defying it. So, for example, in the culture, they tell you, well, your family has a propensity, for the, not even a propensity, your family has a, uh, a family illness of diabetes type 2. All right, that's in. So you're already predisposed for that. You're already with the fear. You're already doing all the things that can actually trigger the genetic expression that, that can actually enhance uh, the problem with the, uh, with the glucose. But these outliers, what they do, and this is what I find with centenarians, people who are over 100, they're all outliers. They look at people in the family that didn't fit that. They look at Uncle Joe who, who, didn't, who didn't die. He, he died of old age at, at 100. And how was he different than the family? And he was different than the family. He didn't buy in. He had a different way of, of living. He created his own subculture. And then those people then bypass the sentencing, the, the genetic sentencing that comes from these myths because there are no family illnesses. There are propensities for gene expression of illnesses. Yeah, I really agree with that. I always tell my clients that, it's how you look at it, exactly what you're saying. And genes really only account to about 10 or 15% of what happens. It's everything else. So it's our environment, it's our culture, it's our thoughts, our beliefs um, that is going to affect how these things are going to potentially express. So that's a really, really, really good point. How would someone know if they're holding on to cultural or other negative beliefs that are affecting their health. Because in Bethany's case, she never thought of it in this way until she and I talked and I explained the connection and then we dived into it more. Well, that's, and that's a really good point because you can apply this to any dysfunction. Uh, and what happens is that, that uh, physicians are culture editors. A culture editor is someone that a culture gives them power in a particular context. Uh, a preacher in, in church or... Uh, um, a llama in a temple or a mother at home, teachers in school, but especially doctors in clinics or hospitals. So if the expert tells you that all that's going on with you is biological, yes, the mind can affect it, but it's just stress and it's all biological, then you're going to have a model of me mechanistic intervention. If this breaks, then we either remove it or we give it some biochemistry to, to fix it. That's it. Uh, or reduce your stress and relax. That it, That's necessary but not sufficient so you're already setting yourself up to be a biomechanical system where if you break you go in and then you go in for the next 20,000 miles just like a car and it's not like that at all there's very very powerful evidence for the last 50 years in psychoneuroimmunology cultural neuroscience and many other areas that are looking at individuals as ecosystems that respond externally but also internally so what can we do Let's say you have X illness or X dysfunction. And in the case of, the, uh, of your client, uh, it, uh, the propensity for um, infection. Okay, the, I, I believe that illnesses are really classified into three different categories only. So for example, under immunity, a hypoimmunity would include the immune system not responding strong enough to fight something. So you have anything from... Uh, parasites to uh, any kind of pathogen infection or even cancer. Then you have an overimmunity. 
the immune system is over responding to something and that's where you get the allergies over responding to something that doesn't need to over respond and then you have the confused part of the immune system that that goes against itself which is the autoimmune that's it that there's nothing else so you want to look at it that way but then the question is if you have this particular problem how did i learn to get sick from my culture editors not to blame them but how did i what was the developmental language that i learned and it's always for your own good. They try to protect you against the rain and they try to tell you this or they try to tell you that. So how did I learn it by either buying into the myth that, that your family has this problem, you're going to have it or overprotecting or underprotecting the person. So that's the first thing you look at. How did I learn this? And then you look at how it was actually functional for you to be that way, that it was necessary. So you praise yourself for having been smart enough to protect yourself. And then you say, okay, now how am I taking that script and that context into a present that is no longer functional? If I'm teaching in school, uh, I don't need to be protected from the rain. I don't need to protect from anything because I'm actually teaching here. So then you begin, and, and there are techniques. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but as you know from the book, there are techniques that you, you practice. But then you learn new scripts because each context, not only does it have a script, but it has an, an attribution. You attribute things to based on the concept and the context. So if you're in the classroom, you're thinking, well, look at all these children. Uh, they, they may have colds. Here's my system that is very weak. And, and all the scripts that you learn from something that's no longer necessary, but those scripts, what they're doing is they're creating an under immunity. They're suppressing immune function. And then children are like a Petri dish. So you pick it up and there you go. There's the evidence. You see, I get sick and, 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 and the evidence um, confirms itself, but not because of what's happening, but because of the contextual interpretation that you made and the scripts that you played out in that particular situation. Yeah, and this is exactly what was happening with Bethany. You've developed some very neat techniques that people can use to shift these patterns that connect their mind and their body. How would someone go about doing this? And I know there's several, or actually probably many, not just several different techniques, but can you give us an example of one that could be helpful in Bethany's case of how she can start to shift um, those beliefs? All right. Once, uh, once you learn the language and you say, okay, this is the language that I learned. And in her case, uh, it's a language of fear and shame. Uh, because if you, uh, and, and they're, not, they're not saying anything bad about the person. But what they're doing is they're saying, our script is meant to be for your own good. But what the implicit language is saying, we're teaching you fear and shame. So therefore, you have to look at what I call the archetypal wounds. And that is wounds that emotional biosymbolic wounds that I have found in every culture. The good news is that there are only three, as far as I can tell, and I've been all over the world. Uh, shaming, abandonment, or betrayal. Those are powerful archetypal wounds, and I call them archetypal because you see them everywhere in every language and every culture, and they have different ways of doing it. So let's say that you have her identify, and they have to identify it because it's very subjective. She says, well, I think that now that I think about it and I go back, I think I was being shamed. I was being scared and shamed. All right, so shame is the wound. And shame is the one that's been studied the most and it causes inflammation. So then what happens is that each of the wounds I found has an antidote. It has a reversal effect 
on the on the particular wound. For shame, what I found is honor. Honor consciousness in the face of shame. And what I have found clinically, we're going to begin to look at it immunologically, looking at the interleukins and so forth to see how that uh, relates. But clinically, I've been able to find that honor has an anti-inflammatory effect using it with fibromyalgia and using it with uh, other autoimmune illnesses that have to do with, with uh, inflammation, including rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, most of the people that I have met with uh, rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia have a shaming wound. So then what happens is that when you replay that uh, context that's no longer functional, let's say in her case, she's at school and she begins to feel the fear and she begins to feel the shaming from the fear. She goes back, she plays it out and goes back into the, uh, to the time when this happened. Then she allows the shame to be expressed in the body, to see what's the, what's the signature. When I feel ashamed, I feel some uh, tension around my uh, neck or something. You notice that when people are ashamed, they, they turn red. There's a, there's a physiology going on there. There's a, there's a vascular uh, dilation and there's some uh, IgEs and other kinds of things going up as if you have some kind of a pathogen. So identifies that, then she takes a deep breath and then she brings back a memory. It has to be a memory, not, not something that you just make up in your head, of when she acted honorably in her life. And she, she might say, oh, I remember I was in the third grade and I uh, did something wrong and I confessed even though I knew I was gonna be punished. Any little thing, unrelated, doesn't have to be related to what happened. And then you bring that in, you embody it, you feel it through your body that, and, and you allow that honor to come in. So what you're doing is you're creating an anti-inflammatory process for a potential inflammation. And then you practice that at home, you bring in the, uh, the wound and you uh, bring in the uh, antidote and gradually what you begin to change is your perception of what you learned that is no longer functional for you. Mm, that is so interesting and that's something I worked on with you as well and I saw such huge changes with it. Uh, and just to make sure that I have everything correct and that everyone listening understands this, what she would do is in the moment that she starts to feel scared that these kids are carrying a bunch of germs and they're going to get her sick, she would want to then stop. And perhaps maybe if she's not able to do it in the moment, she can do that later on in the evening when she's home on her own, right? Yes. Okay. And she would then stop, close her eyes, take a breath and really feel where in her body she feels the sensation of that fear of being sick, of the shaming that her parents maybe are saying, oh my gosh, you got sick again. How did this happen? Where did you get this? What happened? You know, almost kind of saying to her, you were a bad girl because you got sick, even though obviously it wasn't her fault directly. And so she would then stop and really feel as she thinks those thoughts, she would really feel her body and really look everywhere, right? Her legs, her belly, chest, neck, um, arms, head, to really feel where that sensation resides, which can be something very subtle, correct? Yes, and, and what you're doing is you're finding the signature for shame so that when it happens, you know, oh, here we go, here's a, here's a signal for, for shame on anything. So you, you identify how it's manifesting in your body. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know when I did this, I felt a sensation around my neck. Interestingly enough, that's where my thyroid is. And yes. I have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition. So, and I felt, and it wasn't a pain. It wasn't something that was very, very obvious. You have to really kind of close your eyes and sit for a minute and tune in. But it was almost like this little kind of a twinge tingling, but it didn't necessarily feel like a good feeling. It was more of just a a slight discomfort, I would say. And when Bethany and I did this, she noticed it in her chest. Um, And again, it wasn't a pain, but it was just this kind of like a, she she called it a, a little tension and a slight discomfort. So then after that, she would feel that feeling. And then what you're saying is she would then want to replace the shame with honor and thinking about a time that she was really honorable. And what you said too was a really good example that it doesn't have to relate because I think people can find that confusing sometimes that they think that the honor has to be related to that specific shaming, but it doesn't. It has to be really any example of a time that someone felt that they were honorable, correct? That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's the good thing about it because what you do is you begin to then gradually, this would be the next step to begin to live an honor consciousness on a daily basis. And what it does is it has an effect of, of maintaining your, um, your inflammations to the lowest. So you become more immune to these kinds of things. Uh, rather than living in a shame consciousness, you begin to live in an honor consciousness. You do any, any little thing that's honorable, any little thing that you think it's correct. Uh, any, anything that you consider to be the right thing, um, not, not self-righteous, but the right thing for the moment, then you begin to change what, we call in, in, in neuropsychology the default mode, which is the default mode is when, this is for example, somebody does a meditation and they have a default mode of fear that the world is dangerous and that's the, where, where the brain goes back when, when, the, uh, when everything settles. So you do a relaxation and you feel great. You, you feel good, you're relaxed. Within five minutes, you're tense again because it was a Band-Aid. It didn't go to the default mode. What we're doing here is we're going to the default mode. We're going to the, to the goggles that you use to look at the world rather than the things you see out there that are little symptoms. Yes. So you're really going back to that initial potential assault that you know, really created everything. Yes. And when people are feeling this honor consciousness feeling, does it typically feel different than what the shaming or potentially the betrayal or the abandonment feeling that they're feeling? And is it in the same spot or would it be in different spots? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's always better when you're, when you're doing it with a client or a patient, not to tell them how it's going to feel so you don't set up the expectations. But usually what happens is that it doesn't have to be in the same spot. And usually it covers more of the body than the fear. Fear is a very, um, or the archetypal wounds, archetypal wounds are very um, primitive. So it goes very specifically to an area. To an area. The antidote is a, are more evolved emotions, more what I call the exalted emotions, and they have more systemic. So you might feel, let's say, a right shoulder with fear, and you might feel, or with uh, shame, and you might feel your chest and maybe even your stomach, uh, that sensation of honor. It covers usually more. It doesn't have to, but it usually covers more, and it doesn't have to be in the same place. How often do you feel that 
people need to do these exercises? Is it something that they should do every time they feel a sensation, let's say, of shame or betrayal or abandonment? And in Bethany's case, when she would feel afraid, you know, of the children? Or is it something that once you do a few times, it incorporates in and doesn't need to be practiced? Yes, it incorporates, but uh, you know how the, as you know, the, the neuromaps maps of the brain, the, the, the synapses, the, the connection from one neuron to the other creates a neuromap map of a particular thought or whatever. The more you practice it, the stronger they get, the deeper they go, and the more powerful they become. So the practice is really important. You practice it for, for two, three weeks, and then anytime that it happens, then you use the technique right there. And then gradually what happens, you, became, you begin to immunize yourself to the particular um, fear or, or deficiency that you have. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that you, uh, you learned uh, shame. Let's say you're going back to your client and shame is not only happening from, uh, from her culture editors when she was a child. There's, an, uh, there's a, a hyper alarm about shame. So let's say she walks into school, she, she's going to a, to a teacher's conference and uh, she's late and the uh, principal says, uh, Oh, there you go. There you go. You're late again. You can, you can always be, you can always prove to us that you're uh, a person with a problem, something shaming. Immediately she has to stop there. She has to pay attention where the hit is, where's this happening, where's this coming. You breathe into it. You allow it to pass. Don't try to get rid of it. Just you allow it to pass. It passes on its own. And this could take seconds. And then ask yourself, what is the honorable thing that I need to do here? What is the honorable thing? And it could be, for example, uh, yes, I'm sorry I'm late. I apologize. Uh, we'll talk about this later. That would be, it. and then later you go to your principal or whatever, and it's always about setting limits. Say, look, I, I really apologize for being late, but I'm a professional. I don't like anyone to do this, what you did to me in front of people to, to, to shame me. I saw it as shaming. So I would, I, on my part, I'm going to be on time. And if I'm not on time, I'll make it up, but uh, I'm not going to accept that kind of behavior from you that's where you set limits and that's where people are afraid to do it so they keep the shame and they keep whatever that's an example so you can use it in different things but gradually what happens is that as you become better and better you become better at become at, at setting uh emotional limits which is one of the costs of health setting emotional limits is one of the most powerful causes of health and then giving people permission to not like it you don't have to be aggressive to be assertive you just have to be clear on what your limits are. And this is something that so many of us can work on. Um, so often we know what we want or what we may not want, but then we may feel bad. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to upset this person or maybe I should do it. You know, and we get into all of that and that can really hurt our immune system because we're not setting those boundaries. Yes. And, and you, you brought up something that reminded me of, a, of an important point that not only do we learn the wounds, but you also learn you take it and like it. You can't fight it. You can't say, no, wait a minute. I'm going to set limits with you, mom. You don't do it. So you learn the wound, but at the same time, you learn not to set limits. So the process requires for you to work through the, the wound with the, uh, the antidote and then learn to set limits, which you never learned with people in power. So it's a double processing here. One of the other things that you mentioned, which I think is really important, I just want to go back to that for a second, is that mind-body connection. And in today's day and age, this is not a new concept and we hear a lot about it, but I feel like it's still something that people 
don't put enough attention to, don't um, really value it as much as I think that it needs to be valued. And what you were saying is that when you practice feeling that feeling of, let's say, shame in Bethany's case, and then connecting it to where that feels in the body, and you mentioned you can do that for a couple of weeks on your own, let's say in the evening when you're home, but then you can start doing it at the time when an experience or a shaming episode is happening. And I think it's so important for people to realize that once you start to connect the mind and the body, it's something that, you know, yes, it takes a little bit of practice, but then once you get it, it can happen pretty much instantaneously. And it's something that I experienced myself. At first, it was a really odd concept for me because I'm like, well, wait a minute, my thoughts, I can actually feel. I still remember actually an old mentor of mine uh, I was telling her a story about that I felt angry about something. And she said, oh, where do you feel that anger? And I looked at her like she had five heads. I'm not kidding. And I thought, <laughs> where do I feel that anger? What a silly question. What do you mean where I feel it? In my head, where do you think I'm going to feel it? And we kind of laughed about it. And I, I still talk to her. This is years later. And I'm like, oh, I, I really get it now. <laughs> I've come a long way. Yes, yes. Um, but what, what I mean there is that the mind and the body really are very much connected. And so once we're able to really feel that connection and recognize it, we're going to be able to really speed up our healing. Yes, very much. And, and part of what happens, you brought up a very, very important point also. Since we uh, interpret things in our brain, we assume that everything is felt in our brain. So, for example, uh, as she asked you, where do you feel? Um, well, it's in my head. Your head is the one that's making the interpretation. But what happens then, since we, we're not clear with that, we begin to mix our language. You could ask somebody, so how do you feel right now? Well, I feel like I should go to work. No, that's a thought. That's not a feeling. How do you feel right now? Well, I feel that maybe you're asking me, no, that's a thought. How do you feel right now? Well, I'm getting a little angry with you. Oh, okay, that's a feeling. Where do you feel it? My chest. There you go. Uh -huh. You have to change the language to understand it. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. This is so, so important. Mario, this has been so helpful and so enlightening. How can people contact you if they want to connect with you? Uh, the easiest way would be, uh, with biocognitive.com, just biocognitive.com, uh, or Mario Martinez Biocognitive, uh, Google, and you can find my website there. And uh, I've developed a private group now at uh, Facebook to actually create a, a subculture of wellness. So there's a lot of information there, and uh, they can contact me. And in uh, the website, I have a email that they can contact me, and, and, and then I can answer questions or let them know about the books or a lot of free stuff that I have to articles and audios and so forth. I will be posting all of that on my website, Health Mystery Solved, in the show notes. Um, Mari Martinez, thank you so much for being here. And for everyone listening, please check out Mario's book, The Mind Body Code, and his learning CDs. They're really, really wonderful. And I think that you will love them. Thank you again. My pleasure. And thank you for the work you're doing. As we just heard, our thoughts, emotions, and cultural beliefs can have a huge impact on our physical health and our immune function. I'll tell you more about what we did for Bethany in just a second, but first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Dr. Mario Martinez, please visit healthmysterysolve.com and go to episode number seven. There you'll find all the detailed show notes so you can reference everything we talked about and the links to all the resources Dr. Mario and I discussed. Now, in Bethany's case, 
Properly connecting the mind and body was the missing piece that helped balance her immune system. I worked with her using Dr. Mario's framework and everything I learned while being mentored by him. We explored where in the body she was storing those beliefs and also the co-authors of those beliefs. For Bethany, most of this was being stored in her chest and neck. Quite interesting, huh? Being that most of her symptoms were also in those areas and the co-author for her was her mother. I did many of these exercises myself as well when I was personally working with Dr. Mario. And for me, I stored more in my belly. It's quite individual for everyone. So it's very interesting to explore. We then worked on rewriting that with new thoughts and beliefs and really connecting what it feels like to feel healthy with where that resides in the body. Doing this helped to break down the old patterns so the body no longer went there. When she would come across a sick child, she would tune into her body and notice where the tension would start and then bring up thoughts and feelings of when she's well and embody those for a few seconds as she was faced with each situation. After a few weeks, it became second nature. And with the old beliefs dissolved, she can now see a sick student without instantly getting nervous, panicking and running to the bathroom to wash her hands and disinfect everything. And of course, as you can imagine, not doing that is keeping her nervous system down, her cortisol from spiking, which in turn enables the immune system to function properly. If you're experiencing immune challenges, take a look at your beliefs, both past and present around the situation, Perhaps you have some cultural editors and stored thoughts about how things should or should not be, and it may be very helpful to embody and release them using the mind-body method. Of course, everyone is different. And so if this is not your issue, you may want to consider some food changes and immune-boosting supplements to help build your immune system. Be mindful of sugar, as it can really weaken the immune system, and be aware of your overall stress, as there is an inverse relationship with stress and immune function. Supplements that can generally be very helpful for immune system are things like vitamin C, zinc, and probiotics. Probiotics are great on a daily basis, and vitamin C and zinc can also be used in small doses daily and in larger doses if you're feeling that something is coming on or if you're already sick. So a typical, say, 140-pound person could take as much as 5,000 milligrams of vitamin C in divided doses throughout the day and 30 to 40 milligrams of zinc a day for a few days to help fight a cold or flu. Immune herbs like echinacea, elderberry, and astragalus can also be really helpful. And I use a combination formula called immunotone, which has all of them. But please keep in mind that these herbs help boost the immune system so they can be contraindicated if you have an autoimmune disease. So things like Hashimoto's, arthritis, MS, lupus, etc. And so in those cases, the more general support like vitamin C and probiotics would be better for you. If Bethany sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to solving your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.